0: Welcome to episode three of Penny Red, a podcast about the role-playing game Victoria and about role-playing in general. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com and about the podcast, pennyredpodcast.com. This week's guest is Keely Taylor, who I played with at Gen Con in 2011. She was in the same game as Karen Twelves, who's last week's guest, and also Sean Nittner, who will be next week's guest. If you'd like to follow Keely on Twitter, she is Samurai underscore Kiwi. Hey, Kelly, how's it going?
1: It's going very well, Daniel. How are you?
0: I'm doing just fine. I met Kelly uh, for the first time at Gen Con in 2011, and she played in one of the first run-throughs of, of the sample adventure that I have in Victoria. How did you enjoy that? I understand that was one of your first cons.
1: Uh, yeah, Gen Con, I think that was the second time I had been to uh, Gen Con, but the first time that I had actually participated in any, uh, any games, and any role-playing games with a group of people that I did not know, So first experience there for me, Um, I really enjoyed it, and actually the next time I go to Gen Con, it's going to be high priority for me to get into a variety of different role-playing games, because it was such a great experience.
0: Yeah, I think that's the best way to go. The more, if you go to a con and get the opportunity to play a whole bunch of different games, then I think that that's probably going to broaden your role-playing horizons the most, because the games tend to be, uh, all not exclusively, but they tend to be pretty carefully put together, and so you get a... Uh, a nice linear uh, storyline, and you get to, to get a feeling for the system. But before we go much further here, I'm going to do what I, I do at the start of my podcast here, which is called Inside the Gamers Studio. So um, by way of getting to know you a little bit uh, better, James Lipton style, we'll uh, just go through these, these questions here. So uh, how long have you been a role player?
1: I have not been role playing very long. I, I believe I started role playing about three years ago.
0: And how did you get started, and what did you play first?
1: Uh, the first, time, first game I played was a uh, D&D uh, game in the Eberron setting, uh, and uh, the reason uh, uh, I got the invitation from a friend of mine, um, Amanda, who runs many D&D games, and she is a very heavy gamer, she had the idea of putting together an all-girls uh, Dungeons & Dragons game. She had run a few games, and she had been in a lot of Dungeons & Dragons games with other females, but never an all-girls group. and she kind of wanted to do this as an experiment. So it seemed a very appealing thing for me being, uh, you know, being a female and not knowing role-playing. It was a much less intimidating environment, I think, to try to get into it. So it was, uh,
0: it was great. So from what you're saying there, you had a little bit of reticence in getting involved. Is it because, you're, you're the, because of the perception or what you've perhaps even seen that role-players are mostly guys or um, what was your initial reluctance? Uh,
1: yeah, you know, um, the traditional respect is that there are more male gamers than female gamers and my husband's a gamer so I, uh, I have lots of friends who are gamers and um, a lot of them are male and they talk about their role-playing games and you know what uh, some of them comes from my husband's stories about his Dungeons & Dragons games and how competitive they are and I think that was a little intimidating to me but, um, but having an all-girls group just kind of sets it apart.
0: Yeah, I think part of that is to do with the, you know, the system of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you get experience points for uh, killing monsters, and you get experience points for gathering gold. So, to a degree, I suppose the number of experience points you have is a way to sort of keep score. Okay. So, I can imagine a whole bunch of guys together, then they're going to be it's going to be competitive. And was that mostly what made you reticent about joining a game?
1: I think it was more or less. I was afraid to seem. Uh, uh, silly i think might be the word right. um i was afraid that i that i'd embarrass myself in front of people that i didn't know very well sure. and like you're going to say the wrong thing or i'm not role-playing right you know yes. because yeah. I, I in my head not having experienced it i thought there was kind of like a right way and a wrong way
0: sure yeah it's but, often um, difficult to since
1: definitely learn that it it differs from the group of people that you're gaming with it differs for the person running the game and even though someone is playing the same module, it can be a completely different game based upon who you're gaming with and what attitude your your game master has.
0: Absolutely. That's one of the good things about role-playing, that no two sessions are ever going to be alike. And having different game master or playing with different people, like you say, can bring out a whole different experience from the same piece of work.
1: But never having role-played before? You don't know that.
0: No, sure. And it's hard to I describe it for people, too. Yeah, it's hard to describe it for people too when I was speaking with uh, uh, Karen is that when people mention that uh, when they ask about role playing it's often difficult to describe what it's like and when you uh, t- explaining it to people of a certain age there are certainly connotations to do with them I mean you had some game of friends but just generally in the media the perception is that it's for socially maladjusted uh, males between uh, yeah. the age of you know, 15 and 35 You know, that live in their parents' basement.
1: I grew up in the, the when uh, Dungeons and Dragons was about, I mean, that was like devil worship. That was, you know, there were, there were reports in the news of people killing each other over Dungeons and Dragons, and, you know, that's, that was what I grew up with. That's what I thought Dungeons and Dragons was until I'd met people who started playing it and went, oh, that is nowhere near it.
0: In the first podcast, I mentioned the 60 Minutes uh, documentary. I don't know if you, you saw it, but uh, I was in, uh, obviously, New Zealand then. That's where I grew up, and there wasn't really the same sort of media saturation with this is the, you know, the second coming of the devil type of media coverage. So I didn't really experience that, but it's good to be able to talk with somebody who was around then. Was it something that came up a lot, or did you have to keep an, your eye out for it, or...?
1: not something that was, um, you know, uh, I grew up in a very small town, America, but it's not something that was everywhere. But um, if you talked about gaming or if it came up, it seemed to be so-and-so's brother knew someone who knew someone who right. had uh, killed someone over dozens of dragons. It was like urban Legends. It wasn't like, I don't know that I ever actually saw a news story. But it was always when you talk to someone, oh, Dungeons and Dragons, that's devil worship. I yeah. saw this thing on 60 Minutes. That, that's what you would hear it all right. per se.
0: It just <laughs> seems bizarre. But I guess, you know, like after that, it became heavy metal music and then it became, you know, grunge music and, and so on it's and so forth. There's always something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's got, something's got to be in the crosshairs, right? That's it's good news. Right. But, uh, yeah, seeing that on 60 Minutes is a real open, eye-opener for me because I thought they were a credible news source, but it was just was, it was garbage. What's your favorite book or supplement?
1: I can't say that I've role-played enough where I have a favorite book or supplement. Certainly I use the game guide for Dungeons & Dragons, uh, but I wouldn't say that it's my favorite.
0: In that case, do you actually have a game or supplement? You'd, uh, if you could wave a magic wand, you could cause it to cease to exist?
1: No, I can't say that I do. Um, uh, the only other role-playing game I've played besides, uh, the Eberron and Victoria, of course, was, um is Call of Cthulhu. Right. Uh, we've got, um, a group that does one-off Call of Cthulhu games. It's not an ongoing campaign. It's just, a uh, GM who shows up with pre-done characters and we play that game that night and everybody dies at the end. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but that's, but that's Call of Cthulhu. And sure. it's fun every time. You know you're going to die or yes. go crazy or yes. go crazy and die. But it's still a good
0: time. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, you should mention that because, uh, again, that's something that I had mentioned before is that knowing that your character is going to die makes you embrace what happens before it all the more. Yes. It's sort of almost a just, freeing experience. You
1: just, have a good, you just cut loose and go, you know. That allows you – it almost allows you to really role play because yes. you know there's no lasting consequences. Right. You know, as opposed to a campaign setting like my D&D game which is going it's been going on for almost 3 years now. We play once a month. Right. And whatever um outcome at the end of the game carries over. Yes. So you you plan differently than you would if you know you're going to just you know, die at the
0: end of the game, you're going you're
1: gonna to do something crazy. Right. It allows you to
0: stretch a little more. Right, absolutely. And, and I think that that's uh, the way that people should approach con games too. And, and also if I was going to give any advice to anybody that was running a con game is, you know, seriously consider setting it up like that or at least talking ahead of time to get people to get the most out of it because there's no, there's no reason to play conservatively. Victoria, when I ran it, was a little bit different because I wanted to give people in the game the idea that, that was something that would, they would be able to continue if they were to play the game themselves. But in con games that I've run before that, I tend to run, you know, those uh, Reservoir Dogs type games where, yeah. where the players are pitted against each other and you can really tackle some of those taboos, you know, like you don't be mean to the other characters or you get along with them despite the fact that realistically you never would. You know, you want to let people get into the game and, you know, let it all hang out. And being in a situation like that really helps people develop their role-playing muscles, if you will.
1: Well, yeah, and that's exactly what I'm still trying to do. Um, you know, in my uh, D&D game, I play someone who is uh, neutral evil that is their character alignment. And I have to tell you, it's been like a year. It was a year and a half into the game before I really understood what that meant. Right. And really started playing that character. Ne- you know, and again, that has to do with the difference between a campaign and, and kind of one-off. Now I kind of get that and I can actually roll. I can actually role play it. Sure. And I wanted to do it because it's something that is not me. And I feel like if you're going to play a role-playing game, you should play something that is not you. You should right. tend to be something else. Right. Um, but that's a stretch, and that takes time to develop.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that's probably the most rewarding part of it is getting to take on another character. And and while we were talking about it kind of hamstringing you to a degree, uh, when you know that it's ongoing, you can't really sort of play right at the very, very edge because there are consequences for your character. At the same time, to develop a complex and satisfying character, it can take the time that only a a campaign will allow. So it's a a strange paradox in that to really get into a character, you need time. But to enjoy, really enjoy a character, maybe you, you need to have less time. You
1: don't need that lasting. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum.
0: So my next question is, if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose?
1: You know, having not been role-playing for very long, I'd have to say player. Um, I, being a GM scares me as someone who is, who's not been role-playing very often. I think you have to have a very good sense of story and you have to be able to to think on your feet very quickly, and I think that's something that comes with experience and yes. listening to all of these different stories, whether it be role playing or uh, you know reading and, and things like that. That comes from a lot of experience and practice. And I don't think uh, I don't think I'm there yet.
0: Yeah, I, I think that when it comes to to being a GM. Uh, to a degree, you're in a in a good position because you know you're a little older, so you don't have that same sort of anxiety about appearing stupid in front of you know right. the people that yeah, you're so playing with. That goes with. away after a certain point. Sure, you may find that uh, putting together a con game or even just like a one shot. You know, have got that chap that does those Cthulhu one shots. You know, try putting together a one shot of your own might be a good way to uh, you know good way to get your feet get wet. Into it, yeah. Yeah. You know, the long, the longer you leave it, the less likely you perhaps are to be a be a GM. There are some people that have role played with in the past that that have only ever been players that have never been a GM and, and I don't know whether that's sort sort of a rut that you get stuck in or whether it requires a certain type of person to want to be a GM but yeah I'd say I'd say get into it because if I were answering that question I would say GM without a doubt. You know, why play just one character when you can play all the characters except for the three or four that the that the players are so, so yeah I think right. I would I would choose to be a GM, that's for sure. Okay, what do you think the perfect number is to role play?
1: Uh, the number of uh, people, or yeah, number of people, uh, like the number of people within a role playing game or, or characters.
0: No, the number of people within a, a role playing game. Uh,
1: you know, that's a good question. I think it obviously, honestly, I think it depends on the great, it depends on the game and the group of people. Sure. Because you know, I've done um, the Call of Cthulhu games are larger, but we are such a group of people that we we know each other. We we know each other's styles very well. Now that it goes very smoothly. Whereas my campaign is very small, there's only four of us. Right. And I think that works well because it gives us more playing time during the game, uh, during the campaign. we, we are, Our characters are all kind of growing together. Sure. So I, I don't know that I have an answer for that. I like
0: them both. Yeah. Do you think that it makes a difference? uh, Like you mentioned how you plan to go to a whole bunch of different games next time you go to Gen Con. I think that going hand in hand with what we were discussing before about how it takes time to develop a character, but at the same time, if you really want to let it all hang out, you want to have a restricted amount of time. Do you think it makes a difference if you have people that you're not playing with? You're more likely to go to those extremes if you're playing with strangers rather than friends?
1: I think that's the anonymity, uh, you know, anonymous factor certainly of the internet. Even you're you're more likely to say things either honestly or just outright uh, to people you know you're not going to see again.
0: <laughs> sure. Again, you know, no consequences, right? That's the
1: general. That's the general gist of being a human being. I am much more, in, and not that I'm, I would be rude, but I would certainly be much more relaxed in front of a group of people. I know I'm not going to see them again. What the hell, you know? Sure.
0: And that's one of the strengths of the of the convention is that people have that opportunity to let it all hang out. But being relatively new to role playing, do you find that you still have those those feelings when you go to a con? And, and if so, you know how have you got past it, and what advice might you have for other people uh, new to role playing?
1: Um, you know, it was a fantastic experience, and uh, I did have to say I was I was nervous going to the Victoria game, being a new role player. I was, you know, but. My experience was, and I and I expect that this is an experience for a lot of people. You know, if if people are at a con and and signing up for a game, they want to be there just as much as you do. You know, and they're gonna they're gonna do whatever they can to have a good time. They're not there to to talk you down or make fun of you or anything like that. They're there because they want to try it out and they want to have a good time. And um, you know, just go in with the, the right attitude and trying something new. You know.
0: And so what about uh, just role-playing in general? Say somebody who was perhaps looking to pick up a a hobby. You had an in with your husband being into role-playing previously, but but do you You have... I was
1: very lucky that I had, um, you know, a lot of friends who were into it. So it was never a thing where I can imagine if you don't know the world very often and you say you want to get into role-playing, I can imagine a lot of people thinking the typical nerdy things of you. Oh, you're a role-player, you know, D&D... Um, I can see that a lot. I, I think certainly now is the, is a better time than any to get into role-playing because I think uh, gaming in general has come into chic. Um, yes. And that, that term, the, the geek gamer that is so popular right now, I think um, take advantage of it. Oh, yeah. Celebrate it and just get out there and be proud and yeah, uh, sure. try it out.
0: If there's anybody who's got some experiences and they're relatively new to gaming and they're relatively young, then I think probably people would be interested to hear it. Email uh, Daniel at... Hazardgaming.com. If you're somebody who's around, you know, like 20 or just sort of getting started, but uh, a younger, what the perception is amongst younger people of gaming. Going back to uh, my list of Inside the Role Players studio here, Keely, my next one I've got is uh, Should males play females?
1: Yes, absolutely. And vice versa, certainly. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, again, if you're role playing and if you're trying to uh, ultimately. My goal in role playing, obviously besides having fun, is to try something new, is to try to put my, um, exercise my brain a little bit, if you will, and think differently. You know, I'm trying to play a character who would not necessarily make the decisions that I would make in my daily life. And that helps stretch your brain a little bit and, and kind of puts you into a mindset of doing something different, some a different way of thinking. It almost helps you. Think about it almost helps you put yourself in somebody else's shoes a little easier because you just get used to that. they like, oh, all right, yes, I, I can see where you're coming from because I've thought about that as a female, as a male, as a uh, gnome who can't reach the counters. You know, it's, sure. you get you get into this little mindset of learning how to think differently. Think about somebody else. I think
0: that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think that despite the fact that role playing requires you to take on different roles and be different people, I I wonder why it still is that on average, role players tend to still be somewhat more socially awkward than the general populace. You've got a theory about that? No, but it is
1: an interesting thing. I mean, if they spend a lot of time. And you you look at role players and they will play characters who are uh, immensely different. And, you know, even if they are very timid, uh, quiet people, when they're role playing, they can come out with these hilarious, big, big gestures and things like that. But uh, as soon as the role playing session is over, suddenly they go back to that nice, quiet... I, I don't know. Maybe it's just that they, that's how they're getting it out of their system and that they don't need it uh, elsewhere. But it is interesting.
0: And that's another one of those paradoxes we were talking about before. So, um... Do you uh, or I guess in this particular should uh, GMs fudge dice rolls?
1: I think they should the GM should do what's best for the story and the group in front of them and and do what's best to keep the story moving along I, yeah, I'm not saying you know completely ignore the role or something like that but you know if something seems terribly one-sided it's the G, I think it's the GM's responsibility to manage that and keep things moving as
0: best they can. And do you think, though, that a GM should uh, maybe not fudge roles but be sensitive to the story and as much as if the, role, if the dice, say, such-and-such such happens, then it's not really a contest between them and the players. So their job is to make sense of that role and uh, make it incorporate it in the story and take the story off in a slightly different, different direction, perhaps a heroic death or a, uh, or a victory of some kind that might lead off to another interesting story. This is not necessarily something that, that I believe, but playing devil's advocate, how do you feel about that idea?
1: I think the story is more important than the dice roll. I think um, you know, I i guess role playing to me is not the g m against the players no you're all in it to play a game and have a good time yes you're all on the same team almost yeah um and maybe that's maybe that's me being a girl playing um girls d and d which uh is not like my husband's d and d game where he comes home and says that his g m is playing against you know he's killed another character off because um he didn't like the rules of that character and you know, that doesn't seem
0: as fun to me. No, that doesn't seem fun to me either.
1: <laughs> and I guess that's definitely dependent upon the group, and that's something you have to judge once you, once you get in and get to know everybody, and every group is
0: probably different. There's almost certainly some grey in between, but in my experience there are sort of two, there are two schools of thought on, on gaming, and um, certain games will support one school more than the other. But if you're playing a Dungeons & Dragons type game, then, uh, as I mentioned previously, the emphasis is not really on the role-playing so much as it is on, you know, the going through the adventure and killing the monsters and getting the treasure. And and almost there's a sort of a score there. So to a degree, it's like a... um, I forget there's a game that people used to play on the computer. I never played it myself, but where your your goal is to populate the dungeon and make sure that the characters don't get through and, and and defeat you. So that can create that sort of mentality where it's a sort of a contest or it's a competition or you know, like it says, a winning and losing between the GM and the players. And that's definitely not a game that appeals to me. But for people that are at the end of the spectrum that are like like a contest, they like board games, they like the idea of winning and losing. Then that may be something that they they appreciate. But I'm I'm at the other End of the scale, and I think that um, you know, like I'm much more interested in story and character development. That's what I enjoy from role playing. But I mean, your husband keeps going back. I guess so. He must. He must enjoy. You know, he must enjoy that aspect of gaming.
1: I'm sure there's some part of it he does enjoy, and there's and and part of it might be just the group that he's with and and the the camaraderie that the players themselves get against the GM. Right. Um, and, and whatever, um, detail that is, but that's, that's definitely not what brings me to role playing. And it's kind of why I do want to try out a bunch of different games, because I've had such a great experience so far, um, role playing in, with, uh, the D&D game that we've role playing, uh, the GM is very, I don't want to say lax, but she definitely does what's best for the story, and that's sure. what you know. It's, if if something comes out wrong, you know where she's supposed to railroad us into something, she'll be like, "Look, you miraculously do this," and and she'll come up with something that that makes sense for the story, and makes sense for the characters, and get us past it. Sure. For the for the Call of Cthulhu games, it's been the same kind of thing. Although we all know that we're going to die, it's still the GM having a lot of fun with us and. Making it as dramatic and and making sure that everybody's involved and making sure that every every character kind of gets their little ray of of sunshine before they're they're kind of died off i've I've had a really great experience, yeah, I do want to try some more and and see if it's just my luck
0: oh well, it sounds like you've had a uh, i not I don't know if luck is quite the right word but You've certainly found yourself on some games that have given you a bit of breadth in terms of uh, the type of games, because I know that Call of Cthulhu is is very different, at least mechanically and even in content, to Dungeons and Dragons. But you've struck uh, probably the key point here, which is that it depends a lot on who you're playing with and also what sort of uh, GM. You have if the GM has the idea that you know, everybody 's there to have fun and make sure that everybody gets their their moment in the sun, then you can 't really fail but have a you know, have an enjoyable experience but if you 're in a story where you get an adversarial GM, somebody who 's intent on on killing people off, then you know, I can see that for some people that would be enjoyable you know they 've got that contest there 's that you know, like you say the camaraderie between the players versus the GM's machinations, but I think that in that case, you know, you're always destined to lose because there's always a bigger monster around the corner. And, and oh, yeah. as I say, ma-
1: there's always going to be some mechanic that'll that'll eventually kill you off.
0: Yeah, and how do you uh, feel about uh, the GM sort of railroading? Is uh, was the word that you used, but I, I think your meaning was directing the story in a direction that they felt the story was going to be most enjoyable. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, it's a tough thing to say, not having GM'd myself. My D&D GM, uh, Amanda, is so good, I never know when we've thrown her for a loop. And, you know, she may tell us a few sessions after, boy, you guys went in a completely different direction that I was going to do. We never know. She handles it so well that we think we are absolutely playing the module that she set up for us. Right. You know, or, or that she started from the beginning. So, I, I you know, it's really hard to say.
0: Yeah. I honestly... Well, that's good. I mean, then clearly she's a, she's a skilled game master because it doesn't sound like you're being railroaded at all. If you're not aware that you're being right. guided along a track, then you're not being, you're not being railroaded at all, and that's, that's skillful GMing because the reality is unless you're a free-form GM that just goes with whatever the characters say, then chances are you're going to be better prepared in some areas than you are in others. And, again, I think that's another, sort of con- that's another continuum that exists in, or another spectrum, I should say, that exists in gaming as the GM that has everything set out down to the last you know, gold piece and, and a cup on the table to, to those that are completely free form. Have you experienced both of those types of GM, and do you have a preference? You know, I'm
1: not sure that I... Well, I suppose I'd have to. The Cthulhu games have to be plot it out. There, there are only so many choices that you can make to get to the, the end. You're, you are being kind of led through a path.
0: And I think that's acceptable in the constraints of a, of a time limit. Like in a, in a con yeah, game you have I think, to expect... And
1: I think you have to. I found those games just as just as fun again because the the, the DM, um, in, in this case my friend Tyler, um, also seems to make it part of the story. You almost think that it's your choice, that you're going to head and go... But it's the obvious choice. You know, For your character And he presents it in such a way that You never really feel like
0: you're being railroaded Probably If you have a character in a a game That's got a limited time uh, scheme To a degree you can figure out What directions they're going to go in But interestingly in the Victoria I've run that Victoria game Probably a dozen times by now I would think And it's really interesting That maybe it's the way that I describe things but it's interesting the number of things that people do exactly the same yeah. from game to game. And I, I mean, wonder that's
1: if. human nature.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing is, I wonder if it's to do with the tropes that, that we share, such as when there's somebody disarming a bomb, they always disarm it with, you know, two or, or one second to go. And we, we accept that as implausible as it might be. Like, why do they never defuse the bomb when there's no tension and there's six minutes to go? You know, because there's no tension. So when you. Pres- and so there's no drama. That's right. So when you present that in a game, people are prepared to, to go along with it. And although I can't bring any other ones specifically to mind, tapping into those as a GM is a really uh, useful way to, to get people to have a, a shared common experience. And I wonder whether the way that I described things or perhaps even the way that uh, Tyler was it makes the descriptions, you know, it whether it's conscious or subconscious, it taps into some of those tropes that people have stored away, and they, they, just, they react in a, in a way that's almost reflexive based upon their experience in movies and books and, right. and other role-playing things. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. This might be a bit more tricky, but if you could be a character in any game, what character would it be and in what game?
1: Oh, if you could be a character yes. in any game. Oh, yes. that's a good question. That is a really good question. I don't know. There's so many choices. It's like choosing what your superpower would be. It is, and yeah. The world is, is vast and right now my current uh, obsession is Doctor Who. Right. So I would wanna be I would wanna be a companion in um in Doctor Who. Uh, specifically, I'd love to be Rory in uh, the current Doctor Who. Um, as far as I know, they have the Doctor Who role-playing game. I, I imagine that you choose characters, uh, you create characters. But if they ever had a Rory character, that's the one I would want
0: to be. My brother's a big fan of Doctor Who. I never quite got into it. And I think probably that stems from the fact that in uh, New Zealand, uh, when I was growing up, most of the television programs that we had came from England. And I must have been just at such an age when Doctor Who first came on, and I always found that uh, theme music terrifying. <laughs> um, so I must have only been very young when it came it on. Was
1: terrifying! It scared the heck out of me when I was a kid. So um, I, but but the current series is something. Uh, it, well, it might not be entirely different. It's probably the same as it always was. I just have a different perspective on it
0: now. Probably, I'd enjoy the content, but I just you know, just that music at the start has always been sort of a, a red flag. You know, like change the channel quick because here comes that, that that scary that scary music and and the monsters, although they weren't. Very, or they weren't very high tech uh, because at the time there wasn't really much to compare it to. It was hard to, you know, you didn't have any frame of reference to, well, that's terrible. You know, there wasn't even any any animation like that's a terrible costume that 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 guy's wearing. And I think that the the quantum leap forward, obviously, was was Star Wars. Right. And so once you saw that, you know, it made everything look a little bit pale in comparison. Hokey. Yeah, and a little hokey. That's right, yeah.
1: that's That's part of the charm of it, though.
0: Yeah, I, I, as I say, I haven't I haven't seen the new episodes, but I like the idea behind the Time Lords. But my understanding is that there were only ever going to be nine Time Lords, but they're, they're past nine now, aren't they? Uh,
1: I think the original said that he had 12 regenerations.
0: Oh, 12. And oh, okay.
1: Yes, they, they were on 12. Um, they have since, obviously, written into the storyline uh, that that was just something that they threw out to people, right? A, okay. A, that they threw out to Time Lords, so they didn't just continually regenerate. Oh,
0: so they, they were a little they bit careful. A, uh,
1: so they, they've written it into the story that it can go on forever
0: now. Oh, okay. Well, that's,
1: which is the way it
0: should be. Sure, oh, absolutely, if people are enjoying it. So um, how do the Daleks get up the stairs now? Because that was always a joke in comic books when oh, I was a kid.
1: They have a fantastic scene in the new series where the Dalek uh, comes up to the stairs and they're making fun of him because he stairs, and and Daleks don't do stairs. And uh, the the Dalek just says "elevate" uh, in that scary Dalek voice, and and he hovers. Oh. <laughs> he has oh. He just hovers off of the ground. It's it's a fantastic scene.
0: And so, why doesn't the Dalek just hover everywhere then?
1: Well, I know, right? Uh, they do now in the the current series. They do hover. They
0: fly all over the place. Do they? Oh, I was going to say, because I think that sort of inexorable uh, movement that they used to, very sort of slow, they never went fast, but, you know, they were,
1: no, they never, zoomed they never play, stopped. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh,
0: yeah, it's like the Terminator will never stop until, you know, until you die sort of thing was, was part of their, uh, well, I wouldn't say right. charm, but that was part of, part of what made them terrifying. Yeah. Being a female in in gaming you've got a a perspective which I'm never going to have but um, if you had any advice for people that were going to try to encourage girls to get into gaming, guys or or girls is there anything in particular you notice that's different between the way that the Eberron game you play, why it's so, um, why you feel so relaxed playing it and something that uh, somebody might be able to do in their own game that would make it more of a sort of friendly, inclusive environment for for female gamers or just any gamers at all.
1: You know, it's a a, a good question. Um, I would say, and, and you know, this this relates to any gaming, really. Um, but uh, we we have I, the reason I kind of got into this girls' game night like D and D game was we uh, a group of friends of mine had been doing girl's game nights, uh, girl uh, game nights where we would play board games. And we started coming up with, and it's probably a little sexist, we started coming up with girl's game night rules, where if uh, uh, a game had rules where we didn't agree with them or anything like that, we would as a group vote to overrule them and play the game our own way. And I feel like my girl's D&D game does that kind of, <laughs> you know? We, we kind of take a look at it and say, you know what? It's, yes that's written down in the rules section but it makes more sense if we do it this way and it's a very systematic sure. thing which must be female mm. I, I don't think this happens in in men's kids i could be wrong but it's a very female thing yeah. i think where we all just kind of look at it and go no that doesn't make sense that's not fair let's sure. do it this way sure absolutely so, um,
0: i don't know I think being I think that comes down to make uh, the you know the responsibility of the GM to make sure that everybody's having uh, fun. So what edition of uh, of Dungeons and Dragons do you play?
1: Uh the 3.5 rules.
0: Three, oh, Pathfinder? Oh, oh no, actual Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. Yes. Okay. And no so Pathfinder. and so what rules specifically did you change in that game?
1: Um I was trying to think of it was an item or something that we came across and it didn't when, when explained how it worked, we all kind of looked at each other and, and went, really, that's the way that that thing works? Because if we made that, this is the way it would work. And, and we all kind of agreed that, yeah, you know, the, the way it's described didn't quite fit. So we'll do it this way. So now sure. every time we use that item, it, it goes with our rules, not with what had come And I wish I could remember what the item was. It was like last year sometime. Oh, yeah.
0: No, that, that's fine. And so you said that you did the same thing with board games? Yeah, all the time. And do you think that that reflects that it's written by men, or is it not really a, a men a man thing so much as you guys were just sufficiently comfortable that you um, together that you thought, well, if we change rules like this, it's going to be more fun for for us. Or do you think there is a certain inbuilt maleness to uh, games that is, doesn't quite jive with females?
1: it as you know men can't create games that women would enjoy I don't think it's I don't think it's as sexist as that I think it really just depends on the group of people that you have playing and that goes to the role playing being you're catering the game to the group of people you have in front of you not you know not some nameless entity you're you that's why it changes every time you play it you know I think it really just depends on the group of people and we call it girls game night rules but we've applied them in co-ed groups before where we've said you know, we've started playing the game, and um, if something starts going hokey, well, we could play girls' game night rules, and uh, we explain what those are, and then we, we start playing the game like that because everybody enjoys that more. So it really just depends on the group. We, we call it girls' game night rules, but it could apply to anybody.
0: Sure. So because I'm leading towards um, something that I've only just recently been thinking about, is that I'm sure that they exist, but I'm not aware of... Games that are uh, written by by females, like actual female games, uh, sorry, female authors writing games. Now I know that um, Margaret Weiss was uh, did writing for Dragon for the Dragonlance, but didn't develop the the rule set. Uh, are you That's aware of any? Yeah. yeah, are you aware of any rule sets created by girl uh, game no, designers? I can't say
1: that I am.
0: It's something that I can... Perhaps if somebody's listening in, knows of some, might want to uh, let yeah, us know. That'd, you be, can... that'd
1: be an interesting podcast in
0: itself. Yeah, so if, you've, if you know of a... or are a girl game designer, then uh, Daniel at hazardgaming.com. Let me know and we'll, uh, we'll get you on here. You mentioned earlier on in your Dungeons & Dragons game that you play a neutral evil character. Now, I've never actually played uh, an anything uh, evil character. I've, the closest I've got probably is uh, true neutral or or uh, chaotic neutral. Um, yep. how, how does that fit in with the other people in the in the game and, and their alignments?
1: Um, you know, uh, there are two two in the group who are uh, neutral, who are good. One is one is chaotic good, and one is um. What's the other one there?
0: Uh, neutral good, lawful good.
1: Lawful good. One is lawful good. One is chaotic good, and then. Um, the other character who is, she is not neutral evil. Chaotic evil? Maybe lawful evil. Right. She's not as evil as I am.
0: Right, sure, okay.
1: (laughs) So she's lawful evil and I'm uh, neutral evil. Uh, You know, it was a real stretch for my first character, I have to say, which is why it took me so long to kind of catch on to what neutral evil actually means. Right. But I did a lot of thinking about it. And I actually talked to my husband about uh, all of the different alignments. Um, And it's interesting out well now that i have the hang of it and you know i could play a straight neutral evil character and not keep with the same group because essentially you're always out for yourself sure but i do i do bend the rules a little bit to keep the group together
0: yeah that was going to be my next question
1: ideally i might run away altogether but maybe i will just stand back just far enough and do ranged weapons so that i'm not in the melee risking myself. I'm helping out a little so long as I don't
0: get myself involved. So, and I guess that means you can take an equal share in the treasure with the minimum, like maximum reward for minimum risk. So, uh, you'll be answering for the GM here, but how do you or how does she write a story that is going to capture the imagination of all of the characters that are in it? I don't necessarily mean the players, because if I'm writing a game um, and I want it to be in you know, like in a slightly more complex form, a good versus evil type campaign, and that immediately rules out half the people that you've got in your campaign. So what overarching storyline do you have that actually keeps everybody on track? Uh,
1: you know, I don't know that I could answer that for her. Right now we're playing, we started out, I don't know if she was playing a module or not, uh, whether it was something written uh, ahead of time. But so we started out with one story, and then we worked our way into an actual module, and she admitted that we're playing a module. Um, but I know she changes some of the story to keep it going. Um, I know it's not exactly what a module is, although I'm not having looked at the module, I couldn't say.
0: So the game that you have is a series of interconnected modules, or is there an overarching storyline in the background?
1: I think it's interconnected modules. There's an overall world, certainly, but there's no... Um, it's we were working for someone to begin with and now we're working for somebody else. So they're, they're separate pieces. It's not an overarching um, storyline that we're working towards.
0: Okay. So you're, you're sort of mercenaries in that uh, mercenaries in that story. Right. Right. So going back to the uh, Call of Cthulhu games that you played in, what about it uh, do you find particularly satisfying with somebody that might be interested in running some one-shot Call of Cthulhu games? Because that, idea of having a limited amount of time and having your characters be ultimately dead or insane or both um that may be something people want to investigate what particular aspects do you enjoy as a player in those games
1: i would say that the the most interesting part of those games uh is discovering the world and discovering how it's going to be this time that you go crazy and uh, get killed off or, you know, it, it could go anywhere. You could, you could um, just be shot by somebody else or you could uh, run into a creature that explodes your head. Uh, it, you know, it's not necessarily the dying at the end that you're worried about. It's how you're going to get there that's the interesting part. Right. And, and what, what levels are you going to need to sink to or, or raise to in order to try to make it as far as you can through the world?
0: So is so, there a certain amount of shared expectation In terms of what the game's going to be like Or with it being different every time Is it is it always a new experience
1: I would say it's always a new experience
0: How much emphasis is placed On the setting up the characters to start with uh, How
1: much emphasis On, on the different, picking who you're
0: going like to when Like when the chap Tyler uh, Sets up the game is, Do you have a lot of character notes ahead of time Or do you have a, like a rough pricey And you sort of sit by yourself for a oh. few minutes And think about the way you're going to take it
1: we, get, uh, we usually get uh, – Cthulhu games run a little differently. You get your character sheet with all of your stats um, for what it is, but then you also get a little sheet that's a background. And then with Call of Cthulhu games, you may get an extra sheet, uh, which is particular knowledge for your character, whether or not you've had a very interesting dream or whether you've been having visions or uh, whether you're indeed already crazy and working for Cthulhu um, right. against everybody else. So you'll get that little bit of information where, you know, in some cases he'll take certain people aside to give them deeper, uh, background into where they're starting their character so that they can get into it and kind of have a, have a background already to, to get started.
0: Do the games become adversarial?
1: You know, they, they probably should because we know we're going to be killed. Uh, but they don't tend to, because we all know that ultimately we're probably all going to die. Um, and sometimes you end up going crazy enough that you start working, you start completely normal and working with all the players. At some point, you may turn and start working for uh, the cult and be against all of the players. And, you know, sometimes it's very smooth transition, very slow. And then other times, it's literally something snapped in your brain. You now are a cultist and are against all of the other players. And, you know, it's never been that... Nobody does this thing where they obviously start working t- against each other. They all play their characters, even though they all know. They all play their characters as, oh, well, I know this person is a call this because I just heard this, but they play their characters well and say, well, I don't know that yet, so I would do that. Um, so, no, I don't think it becomes adversarial at all, which is interesting. We We just have a good group of people.
0: So you have played... Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Call of Cthulhu. Have you read any other um, gaming books?
1: Uh, I've read books inspired by games, but I have not uh, read any other gaming books like cover to cover.
0: So there are, no, there, are, are there any games that you're interested in trying? Or
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, a whole bunch of role-playing games, actually, that I'm interested in trying. Um, I do want to try the Doctor Who uh, role-playing game, but I think, um, you know, honestly, character-wise... I think it's kind of cool just to get involved in all of these different worlds and find out about them, and you know the the steampunk um, Victorian England world, or the uh, medieval stuff, or the future ones. I haven't uh, really done any futuristic games, so I've got to I've got to get on that.
0: So, what about Victoria attracted you? Because. I remember um, I only had one out of the six characters that was a female, and I was surprised at how many females it actually attracted the game. Is there something about the Victorian era that appeals to females, do you think?
1: I don't know. What really appealed to me in the description was that it sounded very steampunkish, um, and I think that appealed to me, uh, just because that, that world is very interesting, uh, the style in itself and uh, the different uh, attractions and things. Uh, I think that appealed to me.
0: One of the things that I had in mind when I wrote the game was is I preferred games that didn't have cell phones in them. I'm not sure if you've seen the YouTube video um, that sort of looks at a whole lot of movies that were made before there was any such thing as uh, cell phones. So, you know, the number of stories that are incredibly short because there's, because the cell phone exists. and phone. and well, Exactly. And I think that um, right. that is something that happens to role-playing games as well. If you're in the modern day, having cell phones truncates a lot of interesting role-playing opportunities. Often the struggle to get to a telephone or if you're going to go further back, not even getting from one place to another to deliver an important message. That's something which is, you know, which you don't get in contemporary role-playing.
1: The D&D game that we're playing in has something called the Orion Post, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: which is some kind of magically transferred message, which is essentially like email. Right. Um, so, so uh, that's kind of similar. We and we, you, you end
0: up using that heavily. Otherwise, you spend a lot of time traveling. Yeah, so. it's interesting that you mentioned that because thinking back to my role-playing experiences with Dungeons and Dragons, it never even occurred to us that such a thing would exist. And in order to be able to, you know, get the magician to do something, you have to have that concept of instantly transferring. Uh, a message. Now, I'm sure that teleport was used, but developing something to suit a modern-day need was was something that never really happened. That's, uh, that's interesting. So the Orion Post, you say?
1: Yeah, I, I believe that's what she ends up calling. We use it a lot because we want to send messages back and forth to the person who hired us or something like that. So.
0: And so when you were first with the chap that would become your, your husband, did you have any experience with role-playing prior to that?
1: You know, I, I was aware of it. I always I seem to always have had friends who were doing it, but I never asked them any questions or anything like that because I had this image in my head of what role-playing was and, um, you know, didn't do it because I was afraid. Right. Yeah, but I, but I, always had, I always had friends who were role-playing, and, I you know, I, I even think my father tried Dungeons & Dragons when it came out. Right. Um, when he was a young man. So I was, I was definitely aware of
0: it. And so was it kind of like a, uh, a big admission when your fellow said to you, you know, like, I, I can't go out to the cinema with you this evening because I'm going role-playing?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't a big admission. Um, we were uh, friends before we uh, started dating or anything like that, so I was well aware of uh, his interests in things like that. And you know what, uh, as, as, a, the, uh, as a gamer wife, um, I have to say, I would much rather him be involved in those types of games and things than any other type of hobby. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, I know he's having a good time and he's with his, with his guy friends and I don't have to worry about it. And, um, and you know what? He's got his group of friends which he does his gaming. I've got my group of friends who we do our gaming and we've got groups where we game together. How's that? Um, and I think that's really healthy to yeah. have those kind of separate interests separate but equal interests because he can talk to me about his games which as men are wont to do he gets excited from uh, a particular session and he'll want to come home and tell me all about it and what he did and what he accomplished right uh and that's fantastic and i can understand it because now i have i have some
0: experience yeah because my wife uh, i mean we've been married now or together for for 13 years um and she still doesn't know thing one about it and i was I was talking about this before it's almost like people can either uh either get it or they don't get it and so you're fortunate uh to to have somebody you can actually have these these conversations with most people that I know don't have that connection where their their spouse has just got no idea or their girlfriend or partner or boyfriend or whatever it might happen he's got no idea what's what's going on at all so what's it like when the two of you play a game together
1: uh, you know, we weren't sure what uh, role-playing together was going to be like, but um, the first Call of Cthulhu game that we did together, he's in, he's in that group. And, um, you know, afterwards, we, he, he says, well, I, you, he, he actually complimented me on my role-playing. He used you play that character very well. And I thought that was very nice of him to, to point that out, someone who's been role-playing for very long. to to He was very, uh, very accomplishing. I think it's very exciting for him to have... Uh, of uh, female interested in the same things that he's interested in. You know, it gives us kind of common ground. Right. Uh, so he was very, you know, very accommodating and very um, uh, appreciative of me trying to roleplay, like, you know, he, he always complimented me as far as, I'm really glad that you're interested in this. Mm. And you could tell he was genuine, you know? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't just coddling or anything like that. Yeah,
0: I've, I'm really I've, glad you're having a good time. Yeah, I've, I've, I've certainly, my, my wife's certainly supportive of me having a good time, but um, as soon as I start to describe anything about it, I get, get the, sort of the glazed eyes and the, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: When, when, um, my husband also does tabletop gaming, right? And I do not do any of the tabletop gaming with the little figures or anything like that. I right. understand the concept, right? But I will tell you, I am much more interested in in hearing about his role playing games because I understand them better than hearing about his tabletop conquests, right? Those those battles uh, do not interest me as much as you know when he comes home and he says, "Our group did this and this," or you know, I come home and I say, "Oh, I killed a vampire today," and.
0: Right. <laughs> oh, the, the, that's know. nice, honey. <laughs> it
1: is tough uh, when you don't understand the mechanics of
0: it. Sure. So you'd say that that's made your relationship better, that you both understand role-playing? <laughs> you
1: take out of context, that could go very far. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's. Uh, I, I mentioned that in my in my blog is that uh, that when I say role playing, people sort of first of all think think you're weird for one reason. Then you say Dungeons and Dragons, and they think you're weird for a different reason altogether. So yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to, to pick up on that. <laughs> um, that's right.
1: I, I think having similar interests as a couple, yeah. uh, definitely makes our relationship stronger. It, you know, it it just gives us some kind of common ground. But I also think it's important to have separate games and separate hobbies. Mm. Oh yeah. It, 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 because I think I think you need to have those experiences outside that you can come and and talk. Yeah, to yeah. People about. Well, that, well, that's so part of, that's part of connecting time, for sure. Then yeah. you don't have that you you have that shared experience where you oh remember that oh that's right you were there.
0: Right. Yes. So you, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You yeah, yeah. Have I, that,
1: that conquest conversation.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Okay. My my last question for you, Kelly, is do you have superstitions about dice?
1: Uh, I do have superstitions about dice. I have become the gamer that uh, has superstitions about dice. I do have multiple D20s, and uh, I will roll them all at the beginning of the session and try to take the ones that are rolling highest. Uh, <laughs> and then throughout the game, if they start uh, uh, if they start going downhill, uh, I will switch dice constantly and try to get better rolls. <laughs> so, it must
0: just come with the territory because everybody I know who role plays has superstitions about dice. It just comes with it. Yeah, I was the, one of the sessions at uh, at Gen Con. I had come. I, I had come away and I managed to forget my dice of all things. But I'm not very particular about dice. I'll use whatever whatever dice are handy. So I'm I'm playing and then I, I just reached out my hand and there were a couple of dice. I just reached out and grabbed a couple of dice so that I could that I could roll them. And the girl whose dice I grabbed were was it was aghast that I would do such a thing and, and promptly took the dice off the table and put them all away in her bag because they'd been cursed by the GM and had to get fresh dice out. So that was my first experience with somebody who was extreme about uh, about dice. But I,
1: I am luckily not extreme. I am happy to uh, – I, I forgot my dice uh, one of the last sessions, but I'm happy to use somebody else's, and, uh, and I'm happy to let anybody use my dice. I, I'm not superstitious to the point where I will – um i know some other gamers who destroy dice that have been that that poor them because <laughs> they, they feel that it's going to release the badness i, I don't need to do that
0: <laughs> i guess it takes it takes it all sorts anyway thanks very much for taking the uh the time to uh, talk to me here keely take a look for it uh online and if you're willing i'd love to have you back on the show again
1: sure i would love to thank you very much daniel i uh uh It's been a a lot of fun, and I do wish you all the luck in the world with your game. I hope it's very
0: successful. Thank you. That was Kelly Taylor, Samurai underscore Kiwi, if you'd like to follow her on Twitter. For the show notes for today's show, go to pennyredpodcast.com, and for information about the game Victoria, go to hazardgaming.com. Well, that's it for this week's show. Next week's guest is Sean Nitner. So until then, keep talking the walk.